this episode, you will learn how to build, scale, and exit an enterprise SaaS payments business. My name is Alexei, and I help founders scale. My guest today is David Scott. David is the CTO and co-founder of Inverse. Last year, Inverse exited to a US strategic called Duck Creek. Duck Creek was listed and then got acquired by Vista Equity, the largest software private equity house. At the start of the episode, we'll cover the founding story and how David and his team got his first customers. We then go into how to retain your top talent and other challenges. Following that, we'll discuss growth strategies and the difference between client acquisitions in enterprise versus SMB SaaS. And we finish off with the story of how they exited the post-merger integration and what Vista Equity actually delivers in terms of value add to the business. So enough of me rambling, let's dive in. Hi, David. Thanks so much for making it. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Super excited about this episode. So, um, Inverse is fascinating. It's been seven years since you launched the business and a year ago you exited it to Duck Creek and it's, it was a listed uh, company and then they got acquired a day after you got acquired by Vista Equity, the largest software, you know, buyout shop on the planet. So in short, Inverse provides payment solutions for insurance companies and yes, that's right. you're the co-founder and the CTO. So maybe tell us a bit more about what problem you solved, right? And what solution you actually provided. Okay, sure. So we are in enterprise solution, predominantly a SaaS solution. So we, we cloud hosted. And the problem that we solve for large companies, mainly tier one and tier two insurers, is the be able the capability to connect to the payments ecosystem. Traditionally, if they want to be able to go global, work with multiple payment technologies, and offer a great user experience to their customers, they would have to absorb all the costs of the development teams to be able to power that, and even the operational process. So through us, they would connect once, and the the integration is very simple. It would take maybe a matter of a couple of weeks to to get it done on their side. And then from there, they can open themselves up to the marketplace that allows them to offer any payment type to, to their customers. So really it was an efficiency play, really around operations and integration to the, the payment networks and banks and payment service providers. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. And obviously enterprise plus insurance, it's so niche and specific. What's the founding yeah. story? How did you come up with that idea? So, uh, well, initially we were actually working on a very different product altogether, but within that product, which was an insurance product, we experienced the the nuances and the complexities of payments itself. We tried to integrate with multiple banks and no one would do it because one, we were very small, but when we worked with the insurers themselves, they also experienced the same pain. So we had this sort of pivotal moment where we realized actually that the true value of what we could offer someone was this payment middleware. And so we really shifted our focus around seven years ago to form members payments. Uh, and from there, we never looked back. You know, we never went back to the old insurance product. I think it's a very typical startup founding story. You start something and you realize that there's potentially a pain somewhere else. It's much, you know, m- much bigger problem to solve. 
and has probably more value to to the same customer that you're targeting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, pivots are very common, right? Twitch, Snapchat, etc. We obviously pivoted as well. So yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. You mentioned a lot of that figuring out, let's say, of the product came via working with one particular insurer, right? How did you get that yeah. very first one client, right? That's usually right. the tricky part for a lot of SaaS companies. Absolutely, by luck. Uh, in Oliver, who came from the insurance uh, industry before, it was actually one of the old firms that he worked at, and we, we managed to get some network connections through that. And we, we realized that they had one specific use case that they were struggling with internally. I think it was voucher payouts at mm -hmm. the time. Um, and they wanted to be able to to ex not have to work with all these different voucher vendors out there. So again, people think of money or fintech just as being uh, money transactions. It's not. Vouchers are very much part of that group. Um, and we got lucky. You know, they, they said they would work with us. And I think the funny thing really was that even though they were our first customer, they didn't actually integrate for two years. They signed a multi-year uh, SaaS agreement and they only started integrating, I think, after two years with us. Wow. But it was enough time for us to be able to take that feedback and build something out and also to show traction to investors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's let's talk a bit about that traction part and also the, the investors part. So you raised your seed with Lakestar, which is one of the top funds in Switzerland and also globally yeah. at early stage. Yeah. And then your Series A, you did a $12 million round, uh, which was led by DST Global, which is also one of the best names yeah. out there, right? So... I guess in terms of your journey, so you figure out there is this problem and you started working with the first client. When did you start yeah. fundraising? Because obviously in enterprise SaaS, because of the really long sales cycle, it might yeah, take exactly. forever to show the investors that somebody actually wants to pay for your product, right? Probably a lot of people say, hey, yeah. it's really interesting, but then you really need to go back and actually build it, right? So could you take us through that journey? Sure. So in terms of fundraising, uh, our first initial fundraise was through angel investors. We actually were part of a Swiss um, investment group called Sictic. Okay. Uh, through there, we, we managed to meet our first angel investors. As founders, we also put our own money in. So what we did uh, was create a Swiss AG. And to do that, you needed initial capital upfront payment to the bank. Uh, I think that's one of the benefits of going with a Swiss company. Uh, we raised, I think it was 350000 at that point to be able to build a proof of concept and to then also potentially try and bring on more customers in terms of interest. It wasn't so much to even close sales. It was more to gauge whether the feedback from customers would be like, yes, we're very interested in this. But sales cycles will take about a year and a half to two years. You know, Like you said, sales cycles in enterprise are not fun at all. Um, once we've done that, we managed to get another customer on board at a very low ticket. Uh, in terms of licensing. Um, again, that was enough to trigger what we wanted to do instead of go directly to seed. Uh, was more around a convertible note. Okay. And that was to actually buy us more time in terms of getting to a better valuation, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of what the investors would want to see, what we would want to see. And that also just was enough of a bridge. Uh, we actually, we got Post Finance as part of that and another company called Backbone Ventures who were very supportive of um, helping us. I think all of the investors knew that we were going after tier one insurers and they understood the business in terms of, yeah, these guys don't move. In, in fact, I think the longest sales cycle we have is three years wow. in terms of warming up the company to the point of execution. Um, and then the strategy, we, I mean, the strategy has really changed. I, I would say 
we got lucky up until Series A, but I think as soon as you get to Series A, then metrics start changing in terms of what do investors really start to look for. And I think as most companies saw beginning of last year, things really changed in terms of what the investors were looking for. You know, it was more revenue-based, yeah. not so much the traction points anymore. But I think with us, because we're going for tier one insurers, big enterprise, the actual value once they sign you up and the stickiness of stick, staying within an enterprise it's far better because you don't get high churn rate. Once you're in there, you're there for about five years before mm-hmm. they say, actually, this is not working anymore mm-hmm. because the integration costs are too high and the, the, the lifetime uh, or the, the, the project cycles that they have run every year. So they, you know that you're at least there for two years minimum when you sign an enterprise contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So for them, that was enough. Yeah. But the traction element, let's say, without receiving actually money, what do we see? checking your correspondence with potential clients or and then you know allocating some sort of weighted probability to it or or how did they do it yeah they were i mean we we managed to get letters from potential uh clients some of them that didn't even sign up by the way okay they were they were really keen they um, i think the way how they draw the proposal is to say like this is something that we would use we don't know when but we see a lot of value in this because we suffer this pain a lot Mm -hmm. and I think maybe out of the two, we did manage to convert. I mean, sorry, out of the five, we managed to convert two within a year, which is great, even if it's low value. Um, but then the idea is that at the same time, we, we managed to upscale or uh, upsell one of the existing clients from about 50000 a year to, all the way to 400000 oh. a year. So it was upselling the same service and also bolting on new types of I services see. and functionalities. So they saw that the growth wasn't just the main product. It was also all these sort of side card services that you could actually cross out. Interesting. Yeah. So that was, again, that also showed traction for them. Right, right, right. So it's kind of a combination of, let's say, having this MVP and then having commitments and interest from other parties. And that's because otherwise, maybe you don't build a product, right? You ask a bunch of enterprise clients, if I built X, yeah. would you buy it? They all say yes. And then on the back of that, you race. But probably it's not as simple as that anymore. Yeah. You really need to have an MVP and yeah. some sort of, um, you know, use case, like real use case, right? And then yeah. the letters of interest. Okay, that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so how did I would you... also say... Go ahead. So I was going to say, I would also say that a lot of investors who invest in enterprise B2B, uh, SaaS, they understand how much money you actually need to be able to create a successful company. They know you're not going to do it on a thousand dollars. They know you're not going to do it a million, maybe 10 million. Is That's the sort of entry point to build a scalable SaaS solution for enterprise. Mm-hmm. I think one of the other biggest criteria that they're looking for is that you're not going to be turning out to be a development shop for them. Because a lot of enterprise, if they could use you for their own development resource pool, they will. And you've got to be really strong and say no. But they also want to part of those letters that they want to make sure that they're actually buying the product and not you as a development house. That's mm-hmm. that's really critical that a lot of startups have seen fail when they try to go after enterprise. Mm-hmm. They tend to have one client and that's the only client they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And then, so let's say, how did you go about scaling and client acquisitions once you had, yeah. you know, a few clients and, you know, money in the bank what were your main drivers was it still a lot of like direct sales and enterprise sales or any other virality hacks you had so i I wouldn't say there was a lot of virality within the the insurance industry i think 
it is to a degree. So one of the biggest things is networking. You go into the right events. You know, one of them is called DIA. It's a digital insurance agenda where most insurers will go. There's one in Munich. There's one in Amsterdam every year. And they tend to have the really key players in terms of decision makers. So that was one of the best events we could go to because it's specifically for insurance. And that's also where we, I think we signed up most of the leads that wow. we, we had. You had a booth there? Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. we, we had a booth and we also were on main stage. And yeah, so we, we were on main stage a couple of times. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and being able to demo something in real, in real life is really important. Now, you're not going to sell your software there. It's just purely getting that lead in terms of getting a conversation going. Mm-hmm. And then that could take up to nine months to, to one and a half years, depending on the insurer. Um, but networking was the biggest part of it. Um, Oliver did an amazing job at doing that. You know, he was the one that was mainly going to the events. I was going to them more around the UK. Um, but they they had the biggest yields for us. We, we did pivot into having a, a fairly good sales team and marketing team. And they really, they really brought up the brand from, I would say, Series A onwards. We didn't put that much into our branding and marketing before. Uh, in hindsight, maybe we should have, but generally cold sales don't work with enterprise, mm-hmm. you know, so because the idea is that you need a very different approach compared to an SMB. Yeah. Um, direct sales doesn't work. At all. And we, we sort of proved that while we did have a sales team, we didn't actually have any sales through them. We, we eventually started to have different strategies. The first one was um, that worked the best was a land and expand strategy. So the idea mm-hmm. is that you're going with a very small ticket size because a lot of these enterprise companies have procurement limits. So as long as you go under that sort of limit before procurement really starts to kick off, and then you, you get through that very quickly, and then you start expanding, because once you're already signed off within the, the procurement side of it, they don't ask any more questions. They just want to know what value or ROI they're going to be getting later on. So it's much easier to upsell and cross-sell. That was probably the biggest lesson that we learned, because we actually went away from that. We, we started with that. We thought, okay, that's too startup mode. And then we wanted to go more um, omni-channel. Let's let's try um, working with partners in distribution channels and stuff like that. And that kind of worked to a degree, but I think you have to be a much bigger brand for that to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, with Series A, we went, we tried moving away from the land expand. We realized actually that's not the right thing. We went back to it, and it worked really well still. Mm-hmm. And then we really focused more on the marketing and the distribution channels rather than having a big sales team. Mm-hmm. 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 So. To summarize, a lot of in-person networking and yeah. really more about, yeah, let's get the conversation started and then, yeah, land and expand um, versus yeah. with SMB SaaS because the tickets are so much smaller and there's so many more customers, right? You could do much more direct call, call like call calling and email outreach, et cetera, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would say the difference, if you were to sell SaaS or B2B SaaS between an SMB and an enterprise, I'd probably categorize it in six different areas that they, they're vastly different. Um, the first one would be customization. So a lot of enterprises require some customization for them to want to purchase you, which you know makes things a lot more expensive operationally. Where if you're going to go with the SMB, they usually just take what's off the shelf mm-hmm. and then they will do the customization work. So that, that's one of the key differences there. Risk tolerance is very different. Enterprises don't take risk because they want to make sure that this is going to be a five-year plan, not just just imp- implement something and I can get I can get rid of it in a year's time. There's also a lot of um, regulatory rules that they have to conform to compared to a lot of SMBs, so they're very they're very stuck to their ways of thinking. 
Um, marketing and communication are vastly different. You, you can go with a very direct approach uh, with SMBs and, you know, you can have a very clever email campaign and all that, but that just doesn't work for enterprise. So enterprise, it's more around the networking, really trying to get to know the right people. Uh, it is sometimes a bit of a handshake deal. You know, mm -hmm. it's all about who do you know within the industry. And if you go around these circles enough, you start meeting the same people and start forming good relationships with them. Um, budgeting and pricing is also very different. So SMBs don't have as much budget as enterprise. But at the same time, enterprise really lock in their budgets at least once a year. So they do all the financial upfront forecasting once a year. And then they might pivot slightly where SMB is probably a bit more fluid. So they can make quick decisions mm -hmm. in terms of sales. Mm -hmm. And that's why you typically see long sales cycles because sometimes enterprises don't know what they need. And then they see you and then they start working through pricing. And they're like, cool, well, we can't do it yet. We have to wait for the beginning of next year before we can even start going through uh, procurement and, and sales mm -hmm. uh, and finance, which is why sales cycles can take a long time. And then in terms of decision-making process, you never talk to one person with an enterprise. You can talk to five or six different layers of management before you actually get to a key decision maker. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if the, if the ticket's big enough, it has to go all the way up to the board for approval. And that in itself also is big delays compared to SMBs. So right. let's say it goes up to the board, that happens once a quarter, someone's sick, and now they have to wait for another three months for that next person to come back wow. and help make a decision or vote on it. Hmm. So, you know, that's, that's all the pitfalls that you see with enterprise versus an SMB. You mm -hmm. can... I would say you get higher value tickets and less risk once you've signed on an enterprise compared to an SMB. Your churn is not as high or it shouldn't be. Um, but I think it's just the diversification. You know, SMBs are much better. You can actually get a lot more of them. And if your churn rate is 8 to 10%, that, that's kind of a good medium. 8 to 10% of enterprise is not good because that could be 50% of your revenue for yeah. you. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So let's say now after the acquisition, we, we talk about, you know, the acquisition a bit more, but is your team doing any of the marketing or sales anymore? Is, or are you just building the product now and then Duck Creek's, uh, you know, marketing and sales team is doing all the heavy lifting now? So they, they'll do all the heavy lifting. So, I mean, Duck Creek's got a really, they've got an impressive sales strategy you know, due to the success, you know, they've done really well throughout the years. They've been around for about 20 or 30 years. Um, so really what they're trying to sell now is a suite of tools from, mm -hmm. uh, from a billing payments, uh, from billing to payments, to policy management. And the idea is that they want to be able to sell a suite of all these different products to make one big product and you can chop and choose what you want. Right. So now it's Duck Creek payments. And the idea is, is that they can sell payments as a bolt on to their customers. And I think what's great is they've got so many customers. Uh, already that they can go and upsell or cross sell mm -hmm. to you know on the payment side and in terms of any new clients the idea is that they can sell us as part of the suite going forward so it's it's we you know we're not their main product it'd be just part yeah. of a suite on their products if that makes sense. sense okay so let's say for example in a hypothetical world of you know you not exiting and continuing to grow the business yeah. And let's say you would have more budget. Do you think, given that you were so domain focused on the insurance space, that you could probably build a personal brand or you or Oliver or somebody else in your team around, okay, we are the payments integration guys in the insurance space. And I don't know, leveraging LinkedIn yeah. and maybe YouTube, especially maybe LinkedIn, right? Because I'm not sure you, a lot of insurers watch 
YouTube, uh, especially in payments, but on LinkedIn, would that be potentially an interesting strategy in terms of the authority play? Absolutely. And, and that is something we started doing within the last year. So post Series A, you know, we, we hired a good marketing team to actually specifically do that. Okay. So we really started working on the, the brand of Inverse being the go-to payments company uh, for insurers specifically. And we saw within the last year, the uptick, you know, we mm-hmm. people knew who we were within the insurance right. circles. It was, it, I would say it made a huge difference in terms of adding value to the company. Because now if you still if we still go to the same events, even though we're part of Duck Creek, they will still know who Inverse Payments was and they will still reference us as that. Mm-hmm. So I think for Duck Creek, now there's a bit of work to undo that. You know, they want to be known as Duck Creek Payments. But, you know, once the brand is set up, we yeah, we, we still quite recognized within the industry. Interesting, interesting. And then in terms of challenges, was retention a challenge for you or was it, let's say, not a challenge yet? So, and, and then maybe other challenges. So, yeah, I would say it's a constant challenge. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think we sat at about 7% over two years, I think. And we were aiming for it to be a little bit lower. And actually, from a development perspective, that's fantastic, you know, because I was really looking after the, the sort of development and product organization with Bruno. Um, from a development perspective, we, we had very little re- re- um, people wanting to leave because, one, we was we really made the mission of what the problem that we tried to solve was great. You know, so they felt like they were part of a mission in terms of technology. We, I never hired what I would consider people who thought they were the best in the industry. You know, the, 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 the a class, what people might call them. Um, the idea is that I always wanted to hire people with a great attitude and aptitude and then really supply an environment to learn. Uh, and that, that really kept a lot of loyalty within the team to the point, even post acquisition, we didn't have many levers. I think we had maybe two or three, and that was it in the team of 20 um, that we had. So we were very lucky in terms of providing the right environment. And I think that was a challenge, you know, in terms of when it came to money, that was always a difficult conversation because one, we, we paid fair wages, but did we pay the same as Facebook and Amazon and Google? Like, no, definitely not. Uh, we couldn't afford to as a startup. But the idea is that we always made them feel like the, they were they were happy with their salary with the head, but they also the knowledge that they were gaining. My promise to them is that you know you're in a startup; it's always a risk. If you if something happens to inverse, you'll always be way better off compared mm-hmm. to when you first arrived, and you'll be sought after in the market. Mm-hmm. And at you know one point we did go through a round of redundancies, like many startups out there. We went from uh, forty developers down to twenty. You know, so that's fifty percent wow. of the the team that I had to, you know, let go of. And it was very difficult, but all of them found a job within two to three weeks. So we were very lucky in terms of one, we had loyalty Two, they felt like they were relevant within the industry, maybe even more. So we always saw cutting edge in terms of the the right technologies. Uh, In terms of the other teams, it was the same deal. You know, we, we just had a really good culture. We had a very people centric culture. Mm -hmm. And I think people really felt that. So yeah, the, the, the idea of um, having higher churn of staff, it wasn't a thing for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was constant effort. Yeah, had to yeah. really make sure the company always stayed at that level. Yeah, it makes sense. And so, so, so what was the split between your developers in, let's say, Portugal versus UK versus other countries again? So, yeah, so we, we were mainly split between Portugal and the UK, predominantly the UK. I think in Portugal, we had about six people in total. And that was including also our customer success manager. Got it. Uh, and then the rest was in the UK. So I think we were sitting at about 50 people within the UK at one point. 
then about six in Switzerland and six in Portugal. Because we're about, yeah, we're about 62 in the company. Got it, got it, got it. And we discussed it before, I mean, not on this call, but uh, in terms of hiring, you know, talent from the likes of South Africa and, you know, other countries. Like, do you still think that's a really good strategy? And, you know, what other countries could you recommend to other SaaS founders to hire from? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, to answer the question, there's another sort of question I also maybe want to add before that is what do we think the future of development is going to be? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I look at the way how engineers are now, even compared to 10 years ago and where they're going, um, AI is going to be a very big part of the tool set that they use uh, in terms of helping them develop. And in terms of what do developers focus on, it's also going to be very important for a SaaS company. So a lot of SaaS companies always want to have these really complex platforms, which means they need some very specialized engineers with a lot of experience. And you don't really get that as much in emerging countries because they're still quite young in their knowledge of computer programming. So therefore, you do have to go to more uh, countries with a bit more experience. So yeah, I would hire from the UK, uh, hire from places in Europe, maybe America, as a base underlying team with a lot of expertise in building base SaaS platforms. Mm -hmm. But then in terms of feature development, you know, the stuff that's a little bit higher level, that's more user user focused, things that actually are more IP to a, to a company, that's the sellable stuff. That's where I would start looking at emerging markets for sure, because the idea is that there's there's a lot of great talent. They might be junior, but with the right mentorship and knowledge and mm-hmm. training camps, you can upskill them to a great degree to develop features on top of that baseline platform. Mm-hmm. So it should be a mixture of the two. The idea is I wouldn't just hire within one country now, you know, uh-huh. the... With inflation that's gone up, it's it, the operational cost for a startup. You have to be really smart with yeah. how you want to deploy your money and also to try and get as much from that mm-hmm. from your development team. Yeah, so it's a it's a bit of a tricky one, but I would say in terms of feature teams, definitely look at emerging markets. South Africa's great, South America's great. Yeah. Uh, even Eastern Europe is still amazing in terms yeah. of talent, even though big corporates have sort of moved in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to more expertise skill, yeah, you need you need to look at more developed countries okay. with that experience. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good combination, basically. Um, cool. So, and then basically a year ago now, right? I mean, I think in three days, it will be your one year anniversary since the yeah. announcement, at least. Um, you got acquired yeah. by Duck Creek, which is a US listed conglomerate. So maybe walk us through yeah. how did that come about? I mean, were you looking to acquire some customers in the US and then they started talking to you or you know, you were trying to race and, you know, they then were one yeah. of the potential investors, but then, you know, decided to acquire you. Like, how did that come about? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. So, yeah, we, we always wanted to go to the U.S. And at one point, we were actually looking to acquire someone, uh, a payments rail company that built infrastructure, but it wasn't the right thing for us. Uh, Oliver had known Mike Chikowski, you know, through some of the networking events. I think Mike had found us through Accenture because Accenture was also part of, the, the sort of uh, not so much part of the funding, but they were, they were really there in terms of support and trying to be like a channel partner. Um, and Duck Creek was actually an Accenture company before it was Duck Creek. They spun out uh, completely. Wow. So Mike Chikowski got introduced to Oliver that way. And yeah, I think at one point there was more talks around them investing in us because they really loved what we did. They actually went and shopped around the market. They couldn't find anything in terms of what we could do. And because they're also a SaaS platform, that's also, um, they want to be able to deploy to their insurance companies. 
Nigeria is that we worked really well in terms of the ideology of how do we build our platform and how are they building their platform. And they couldn't find anyone else out there. So at first, yeah, it was more around investment, that they were more keen to look at us um, as part of their investment portfolio. But what we didn't know at the time is that at, they were going to be bought out by Vista. So they got bought out by Vista uh, about, I think, a day after us. After we signed, they signed. So for them, it was actually much better to do the acquisition path than trying to get the investment path. And because from a strategic alignment perspective, we really worked to their vision of what they want. You know, what we want to do at Duck Creek in terms of have more global market coverage. The idea is that we were already a market player in terms of the global space. So for them, it was a bit of a no-brainer. And they, I think, like many other companies, they always try to build this stuff themselves. And they realize how complex payments is. Because it's not so much about the technology, it's about the domain knowledge. Understanding payments to a really good detail, there's not much knowledge out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they saw it as a sort of two birds and one stone uh, mm-hmm. solution. And then afterwards, they I think what they saw the value was is that they also going through a digital transformation like most um, enterprises are. And they really saw a lot of value in the way how we built our platform that they could probably you know, leapfrog and actually build rather using out the same way how we built our stuff and take all the domain knowledge that we've we've learned over the years and how to build scalable SaaS and take all the learnings and implement it within the internal solutions as well. So and that that's what we've seen for the last year is that they, they really want to learn and they really want to learn how to be like the best SaaS company mm-hmm. out there. So the attitude's been really great. Mm-hmm. And they're predominantly US based, right? Like even the developers. They are. So they have been uh, no from a development standard. They 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 based out in the US, in India, uh, a Spanish team. Okay. They got a they bought out a French uh, company, so they got a French team. They got okay. developers in the UK, so they, they're quite global from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. And now they are going global, you know, so that they they're not just looking to stay in the US. They want to be able to also take the platform that they have and and move all over the world to Australia to India. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So probably they've got fairly ambitious dreams. Yeah, and it's fascinating. So you basically got acquired, and then the day after, there was an announcement that they themselves were acquired by one of the largest enterprise software private equity funds, Vista, right? Um, So were they communicating to you at all about that deal? No, they couldn't, right? No, they couldn't. No, absolutely not. Interesting. I mean, yeah. I think it's always in hindsight like i mean as a founder you kind of start thinking well did we sell you too cheap or did should we have been a little bit more pushy if we had known you know imagine the sort of power we could have had as leverage to the point that it could be self-destructive that we could have gone too cheeky and they they would have said no to that so yeah i mean just i, I wouldn't even know what i would have done if we had if we had known that they were going to get bought out themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you know i think I think what was more important for us is we saw where the markets were going in terms of uh, startups. You know, we, we've seen a lot of friends that have suffered through the economy crisis last year. Some have lost their companies, downsized, had to really pivot. Uh, for us, it was really important to keep the vision going. But mm-hmm. also, more importantly, we made a lot of promises as founders to the employees that we had right. that we wanted to bring them stability. You know, so the idea is that having that stability was way more important for us and, um, regardless of whether this was buying or not, you know, the, the outcome would have been the same. Mm-hmm. 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 Makes sense. And so what we maybe through the process of post-merger integration, right? So let's say you sign yeah. the deal, right? And 
now you no longer just share information with your board, but you suddenly yeah. have somebody you report to, right? So maybe walk me through that. And, you know, maybe if you can disclose even some of the reporting structures or the titles, yeah. how does it usually work in, you know, in reality? So I can, I can talk to you about how it works with Duck Creek. And I can also tell you more as a, as a, as a founder that sold the company, the emotional journey that you go through. Perfect. Because um, I, I don't think a lot of founders actually talk about that side, right? They, everyone just sees acquisition our oh, way, well, amazing. For, for, for starters, but, there are not many founders who even exit. So that's that's already a good start, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the, I think, I mean, personally, the first thing you go through is more of an identity crisis. Because one, I, I was a CTO of a company for, was it six years? And then all of a sudden, you're no longer that same position. So you are still the leader of that that, that team. But in terms of uh, strategic decision making, in terms of stress that you go through as a founder, some of that goes away. But it does start you start questioning yourself, to so saying, "Okay, am I still relevant for the market? If you know, am I going to go into Duck Creek and be the the startup CTO that um, that can maybe perform within an enterprise?" And I knew I could, but you go through this bit of a identity crisis. And apparently, I was talking to another founder that's gone through it and he went through exactly the same thing, but no one talks about it. So yeah, it's a bit of an emotional journey for the first six months because you have to get used to a new identity altogether. It's no longer your baby. Even though you, you feel like it is, you still want to make sure it's alive. The idea is that you are no longer in control of decision-making as to the future of the company. All you can do is advise, you know, so that that's the biggest step that you have to realize when you're going to uh, get acquired. It's not your money anymore. To mm-hmm. someone else's and therefore the decision making is with them that's that's fair you know they, they they paid for the company and they should make decisions around it um in terms of duck creek uh it's very much like Accenture. so they have all the different levels from um c-suite to senior vp to vp senior director so it's like a big ladder of titles that you will go through and each one uh, has very different responsibilities in terms of how big a department you run in terms of like what sort of uh, strategy or uh, decisions are you allowed to make without going back up? Um, and I guess that was quite a lot of getting used to. You know, we were very dynamic in our approach in terms of wanting to make quick decisions and just get on with it. But all of a sudden, you have to be sensitive to the fact now there's a procurement team that you have to go through. There's a security team you have to get approval for if we wanted to use new software. And it's not like it's ever been a struggle. It's just that all these extra steps do add up. And yeah. the idea is that what should have taken a day or even a week in terms of decision now takes two months. And that's just like some of the getting used to. Uh, things like reporting to my, who is my boss now, his name's Jeff. He's the senior um, VP for engineering. He, he's he been great. Uh, I think in terms of experience, I think he's recognized that I'm, I'm a very strong technical leader and he's actually leveraged a lot of our experience and knowledge and he wants to reflect that within the rest of Duck Creek. So he's been really, really supportive. And I, I can't say I've heard similar stories to other acquisitions. Uh, for instance, one of the, the, the guy I mentioned earlier went through the same roller coaster. Uh, he was let go of within a year of his own company because they already had a CTO. They didn't need another CTO. Mm-hmm. And they really struggled to find a good position with him in the company. They saw like they didn't try. But eventually it led to frustration to the point where he's just like, look, he doesn't have to be here. He, he can act more as a consultant than he left mm-hmm. and i think it was mutually beneficial for both of them so that's a bit of a harsher exit i would say but yeah i would say with duck creek we've been really lucky they've been really welcoming um things haven't really changed operationally for us you know they, they actually 
see us as the gold standard within the way how payments work. And since then, uh, Jeff, my, my, my boss has asked me to take on a couple of other teams to bring them up to standards. Cool. So the idea is that they really want to promote the, the, the good stuff as a startup. So he's, he's been great. Um, even in terms of bringing up the product side, I can say the same thing. You know, we haven't had any problems in terms of um, incorporating the company. I would say, if anything, um, Duck Creek's probably had a, a lot more advantages for the staff. You know, they came up with a, a far more formal way to, uh, for knowledge base, knowledge learning, training. That's something we never had as a startup or even had the budget for. And actually, that's been one of the, the plus sides. But mm-hmm. I think like any, any bigger company, if you're coming from a startup, you'll start seeing that it doesn't have the same uh, flexibility. And that can cause frustration. And I think that's where... It comes down to personal preference as to what type of organization do you want to work for. I've seen some of the staff that we have thrive within the environment, and some of them just don't enjoy it because they feel like they they within a big machine. You know, they don't feel like they 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 adding much value, which is not true. I think it's just more of a perception thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I would say yeah, the, the integration part was difficult at first because we didn't know what to expect. It was a different culture. You know, we we were an English based company going into a US based company. Um, we didn't think about half the stuff that they thought of and they didn't think about some of the stuff that we thought of. So there's been a lot of knowledge sharing. I think we've been quite fortunate from that perspective. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. So in terms of maybe lessons for other SaaS founders, right? Yeah. From building the product, custom acquisitions, scaling, you know, and the exit, anything, you know, the top two lessons learned, you know, for other founders out there? Absolutely. And I I think I can be fairly controversial. And I'll I'll talk more from a product and engineering standpoint. One, doing something simple and doing it well is everything. The the, the moment that you start diversing yourself in too many value streams in your product, that's when you start getting into a bit of a mess because you don't know where to prioritize your effort. And we see this, you know, you, you have something and the customer says, oh, but if you just have this little feature and you could just develop it for us, you do it because you want the money coming in. You're so desperate for revenue at some points because that's the sort of um, constant nag that you have to succeed in terms of metrics. But the idea is it can lead you astray. You can actually make some pretty bad decisions in terms of pivoting away from the actual product that you should be developing. So keeping something simple, doing it well, and doing it um, on a repeating loop so you get good sales cycles, you can sell the same stuff, that's should be the first point that you reach and it doesn't have to be sexy and i think you know a lot of um SaaS founders are, are meet that diversify too soon so that's my first piece of advice uh in terms of scaling up you don't need bums on seats if you get your money from series a don't feel enticed to want to scale your team four or five times the reality is that you're when you look at your product itself if you get a, a big chunk of money like series a you need to reinvest a lot of it you've got a lot of technical debt and I don't think I've ever met anyone going into Series A that, that would say otherwise. But the idea is throwing another 50 people while you've got that huge technical debt is actually going to slow down your company a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a really good example of this. We we went from 15 developers to just under 40 within a space of about six or seven months. So a lot of time is spent in recruitment process. My time my time should have been spent more on the vision and strategy mm-hmm. leading the product, but I was in interviews all the time um we had to develop a a software development life cycle that was very clunky it was very sort of enterprise and and we slowed down to the point we were capturing metrics and how the team were performing and 50 percent of the time we're in meetings 
which is deadly for a startup. Yeah. And as soon as we we reduced the team down, we we actually moved away from the say this the agile methodologies of Scrum and stuff, and we we lost no productivity at all. In fact, in fact, we were doing better than we were before we had uh, that huge team. So mm-hmm. I would say, before you scale, make sure you have the foundations right before you throw people at it. Um, the idea is that you you want to be able to optimize everyone that you have within your team before you start adding more bumps and seats. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of um, founders get enticed by. Hey, we've got money, let's just hire. Yeah. yeah. And you can stagger your hiring. You can drag that money on a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I guess founders have the pressure by the VCs or, you know, investors to, you know, recruit yeah. and scale faster. But I think, yeah, if you, in hindsight, you can also just say, look, guys, thanks for the money. Give us six months. Yeah. Let's clean up shop and then start scaling again, right? That would yeah. be the wiser thing to do. So, David, we discussed um, a lot on this episode, right? How you launch the business, uh, who to hire, how to acquire clients, you know, how you exited the business, how the whole post-merge integration yeah. process works. And what's really rare out there is to actually understand or like listen to somebody who went through a process uh, with one of the leading software private equity firms uh, buying yeah. the acquirer uh, who acquired actually a business. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, you know, a while ago when we caught up, uh, you mentioned that you are reporting to the VP of engineering at Duck Creek, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think for the listeners and for the viewers, it would be really interesting to understand uh, what value does Vista Equity actually provide and what are they doing to yeah. Duck Creek after acquiring them? For sure. So, you know, when Vista look at a company, they look at the potential of a company. And, you know, Duck Creek in itself has been very successful for a very long time. But I think it's now at this point where it needs to be operationally way more efficient because it can drive way more value. Right. And I think a lot of companies of this size tend to go through the same thing. So what Vista is really good at is that they, they look at a company at, as a whole and they, they can see the potential value of where it could be within the next four to five years. And then from there, they start saying, OK, what efficiencies do we need to start bringing into the company? And, and yeah, some of them might be very difficult decisions to make. But ultimately, they, they tend to make the hardest decisions within the first year in terms of what the company structure needs to look like. And they bring on a lot of experience from outside of the organization to try and help encourage the, the, the company onto the right track. So, for instance, you know, they're, they're bringing on people that have scaled companies from older legacy systems to, to more modern new systems. They recognize within Burst, for, in, for instance, how we could actually have a very big role within the company going forward because we're already at the sort of target operational model architecture of running a SaaS platform where we they could leverage us to be able to go into other teams and other you know, product departments already. So the idea is that within the first year, they really want to look at optimizing more the costs and the running efficiencies of the company. And then from there, it's it's really about bringing more money into the company, trying to expand the company's operational capability more than the actual product itself. Because they, they realize that if you sort out the machine, the output of the machine will look after itself. So I think that's the sort of mantra that they have. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it, got it. So yeah, obviously... In these times, valuations are now a multiple of profit, not sales anymore, right? So they are basically increasing the profit, yeah. cutting some of the costs 
and improving, you know, the whole operation, optimizing a lot of processes, bringing in new talent, yeah, stronger leadership as well. And then, as you said, I guess in the future, they're also doing kind of like a buy and build strategy where they, you know, provide a bigger suite of solutions to the same clients, basically, right? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think in terms of any SaaS platform that they're looking at, uh, typically the profit margins that you're looking at are about 70 to 80% profit margins. Wow. So that, that's the sort of numbers they'll be looking at. And then they'll be also looking at the, the, the ability to go global. You know, in this case, Duck Creek is going global. They've been very much just a US market player for a very long time. So the, the opportunity for them to be able to grow, not just the, the profitability in terms of efficiency, they know that by going global itself, they, they can also get brand new revenue streams that have never probably been there before within Dockery. Amazing. And then let's do a quick, you know, quick fire of, you know, four questions. We always ask every interviewer, uh, interviewee. Um, so uh, what's, uh, yeah, what's your favorite book in terms of maybe SaaS or, or tech out there? I think the, the recent one I, I read was Build. Uh, it was built by Tony Fidel. Uh, so he's he was the creator of iPod and he, he was a big influence on the iPhone and he also built Nest. And he tells his story of how he fumbled through those from a young entrepreneur all the way to being sued and stuff like that. So he, it's it's kind of like a mentorship book in terms of everything I experienced. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of parallels to what he, I mean, he did it way more successfully over years. But the, the stuff that he says is, I would say you, you hear it in um, lots of conversations when you talk to people, but he, he really encapsulates what it means to be an entrepreneur and building something worth building. Mm-hmm. That's his that's his main takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So if I was to be encouraged to want to read a book on entrepreneurship and building something, that would be a good place to start. Okay, okay. And then which entrepreneur slash business leader do you admire the most? I would say Bob Iger of Disney, uh, the CEO of Disney. Uh, if if you look at the way how Disney has been turned around in his leadership, it's chalk and cheese. You know, Disney at one point weren't doing so well, and he came in with a very creative mindset. Uh, he realized he, he was very visionary. He saw what technology could do for Disney. Um, even buying out Pixar, he, he didn't have a big ego. He went back to Steve Jobs. You know, after the the Disney relationship had broken down, uh, and he he wanted to do the right thing, and he had a big vision behind him. And his his ability to articulate communication and strategy is is unlike many people that I get to to watch. So I would say Bob Iger. Cool. Yeah, I I did read the uh, the corporate story of of Disney. It's a, it's a great book as well, actually. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah. And then, what is a SaaS tool you use, which a lot of other people don't know of? So. One that we, we purchased about a year ago, and we're using them a lot, and they, they're awesome, is a company called Zuplo. So that's Z-U-P-L-O. Uh, they're an API gateway management um, software, SaaS, but they, they're very unique in the way how they, they build. They're very developer-friendly, and they, they've just been a great experience to work with, and I can see really big things coming up for them in the next few years. I think they just raised a Series A now. So, um, yeah, great company. I'd recommend them. Okay, awesome. And then finally, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, word. Um, probably, to be honest, it's, it's probably from my architect, James Wilk. Uh, he's, he's an incredible guy. He's, he's super intelligent and he's, he's very humble. Uh, and he's, his favorite saying is, um, you know, to, to keep everything simpler or to, to make things as simple as possible, but not simpler, you know, the, the Einstein saying. Mm-hmm. And it's something that he's really made me aware of, I'd say, more being his CTO. Um, 
he's given me a lot of advice just around keeping things simple. The simpler, the better. You know, we, we, we want things to be boring in the in the software world, not exciting and trying to change everything every two seconds. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Look, I mean, it's been really, really interesting. I think you can uh, really hear and uh, understand that you have so many years under your belt. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, and still plenty to learn, right? Um, the thing is that I think a lot of it's luck. And I think if you're paying attention, you'll learn something along the way. But yeah, there's just there's so, so much to learn. Uh, I think that's the main point of wanting to do be an entrepreneur is that you, you just it's self-suffering all the time, but for good reasons. Awesome, <laughs> awesome, amazing. Well, good luck on the journey, and um, yeah, okay. chat soon. Yeah, we'll chat soon. Cheers.